Kim. <laughs> Thanks, Kim. Oh, gee, God is, God is good. And as I um, just walked around this morning, just hugging some necks and shaking some hands, I just, I just became overwhelmed with the goodness of God and, um, and how he loves us and that he is so much bigger and greater than any of us could fully comprehend and that uh, he, the Father, sent Jesus, the Son, to live among us, to ultimately go to a cross, to die for us and in our place, to cover our sin so that he, God, would no longer hold it against us And then that Jesus who gave his life, the Father raised him from the dead, and uh, he ascended back to the Father. You know the story. And from that exalted place, they, the Father and the Son, sent forth the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, to live in the likes of us. Is that amazing or what? Somebody ought to shout something. Greater is he that is in us. That gospel will never lose its power. Only when we turn from it and begin to shift our attention from who God is and what He has done for us does it ever lose its power. Well, I want to share this morning as we... um, By the way, would, would our elders identify themselves this morning? Raise your hands. No, let's have them stand up. Those who are presently on session and any who are off session who are also elders. Where are you? Just stand up. All the way up in the balcony. This, uh, okay, you can be seated. <laughs> now, I, yeah, let's, God is good. Now, I pulled a fast one on them this morning because at 7 o'clock, the Lord gave me instructions that we were not supposed to serve communion to you all in the pews. And now they had planned on doing that. And the Lord said, no, I'm going to spread a banquet out for my people this morning. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and therefore, I changed things on them. And um, they're good to go with what the Holy Spirit seems to say. Can we give the Lord a hand for their flexibility? And... Well, turn with me, if you would, as we contemplate moving toward the celebration that the Lord has given to us. Turn with me to the book of Esther. And um, as I was in the balcony, I hugged on uh, Anne and Bill, and I said, you know, the Lord's directed me to teach on Esther, and Anne's taught on Esther so many times, and um, learned so much from her over the years. But I want to just summarize a story this morning, if I can, of, of Esther. And Esther, if you don't know, is you know Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then you come to Joshua, Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, and Chronicles, and then you'll find Esther. For those of you who may not know, for those of you who are on your iPhone, you just you know, tell it Esther and it comes up. I don't know how it does that. Um, But Judah, the southern tribe, at this point in Israel's history, 
the, the, the nations had been divided into the northern kingdom, still called Israel, and the southern kingdom called Judah. And last week we talked a little bit about Hezekiah and uh, his life. If you weren't here, you can pick that up on myrtlegrove.org and listen to it. Because ending with Isaiah 60... God said by the prophet Isaiah to Hezekiah and then others uh, to arise and shine for your light has come. And the coming of the light then is what causes us to be then enabled to rise and shine. And that is true in every generation. And uh, Judah, therefore, the southern kingdom, had been carried off into Babylon. Um, as you would read the first few verses of the book of Esther, and I'm not going to read uh, actually this morning until I get to the fourth chapter, uh, but they were carried off into captivity. God's people, though they were separated north and south, Israel, the northern kingdom, had already gone. Judah now was carried off into Babylon, and by and by, the nation of Babylon was uh, conquered by the Persians. Nations come and go. There's nobody in here, I don't think, that loves our nation more than I do. But as I said last week, the nation is not the kingdom of God, nor is it the church. The church expresses the kingdom, but nations do what they always do, and that is they're part of the world system. Well, God's people, through disobedience, were actually carried off into Babylon, and eventually the Babylonians were conquered by the Persians. And we come to chapter 1 then of Esther, and we find that there was the king of uh, the Persian Empire, probably Xerxes, X-E-R-X-E-S, I think, the first, who is called here Ahasuerus. That's a tough one, isn't it? Um, Ahasuerus. King Ahasuerus uh, was living in Susa, and about, I don't know, a few years into his reign, uh, as kings do, kingdoms of the earth, the king... Ahasuerus decided to have all of those people of power and prominence uh, come to his Persian kingdom in Susa, and uh, for 180 days it would appear that King Ahasuerus uh, had an open house so that all of the, 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 the pompous, you know, the, the princes, um, the nobles, of the Persian Empire, over, over uh, which was enormous. Um, they all came for about 180 days, and King Ahasuerus had an open house, and the king showed them all of his goods. Now, if you were here last week, you might remember who else did that. And uh, over 180 days then, the king showed all of the powers of Persia and the Medes, um, all of his treasures and all of his goods. And after that 180 days, that just I'm in the first four or five verses of Esther chapter 1, 
um, after the 180 days was completed, King Ahasuerus then uh, had a feast for seven days. That, that was a raucous party. And the scripture says that um, after, on the seventh day, uh, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded his queen, whose name was Vashti, V-A-S-H-T-I, to come into him and all of his uh, uh, dignitaries wearing her royal crown. Now, we're not sure what else she was to wear. But we do know there was a wine party going on for seven days. And the Scripture says that King Ahasuerus sent for Vashti after his heart was married, and he commanded the queen to come wearing a royal crown, but she refused. And it's the she refused that's always baffled me which has caused me to read into what inappropriateness was really inherent in the command for her to come and show off her beauty to those who had been imbibing for seven days, and she said no. Now, your imagination is just as good as mine, but what we do know is that she said, no, I wouldn't come, and the result was that King Ahasuerus became so enraged and angry that she was banished as queen from his presence from then on. Uh, she was banished from the king's presence and she was stripped from her crown. That's the essence of what's contained in the first chapter of the book of Esther. Queen Vashti gets the axe because she said no to the king. Well... As we come into chapter 2 then, I'm going to summarize the story uh, this morning uh, that after his heart began to be settled down from his rage, King Ahasuerus, and his noblemen began to uh, decide how they were going to fill the heart of the king after his rage was abated because King or Queen Vashti wouldn't come banished and stripped from her crown. So they hatched a story. Well, they hatched a plan, and you probably know the plan. They were to search throughout the kingdom for all of the beautiful and lovely virgins of the land and bring them uh, to King Ahasuerus. And in fact, that's what they did. And about verse 5 of chapter 2, let me just uh, begin reading here for just a moment. And it says, verse 4, Let the young women who pleases the king uh, uh, to be queen instead of Vashti, uh, this thing pleased the king, and he did so. So, number 5, verse 5 of chapter 2, in Susa, it also uh, says Sushan, but it's in Susa, and in the, the, um, the, the temple, the citadel, uh, the the protected palace of the king, um, there lived a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai. Now, sort of what that suggests is that living outside, right in, outside the gate of the citadel in the town of Susa, um, the king was now searching for beautiful young 
virgins all over his territory. And there was a person who had evidently um, a position of prestige in the gate um, of the citadel whose name was Mordecai, and he was a Jew. Um, and he was the son of, verse 5, he was the son of Jer, uh, who was the son of Shammai, who was the son of Kish, who was a Benjamite. Now, we're not certain, but we know something about Kish. Kish, the Benjamite, uh, we're told from other Old Testament texts, was the father of Saul. If we read on, verse 6, Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives who had been captured uh, with Jehoiachin and uh, carried away with Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. I take that to mean that Mordecai's uh, father and his grandfather, now Mordecai is the fourth generation of the father, the great-grandfather, who was carried away by Nebuchadnezzar. So the great-grandfather of Mordecai was carried away in the, uh, in the occupation of Judah and was now living in Babylon, who had now been captured by Persia. And over then the generations, we find Kish, then giving rise uh, to uh, Sem, uh, Semai, who gave rise to Jer, who gave birth to Mordecai. And Mordecai, we're told, I know this is kind of convoluted, but Mordecai, we're told, um, had brought up this beautiful girl by the name of Hadassah. H, this is verse 7 of chapter 2. Mordecai had brought up Hadassah in the Hebrew, uh, whose name was actually Esther in Persia, um, as his, his own daughter, for she was neither without father or mother. The young woman was lovely and beautiful. When her father and mother died, Mordecai, uh, actually her cousin, raised this beautiful young Esther, whose name was Hadassah, whose Hebrew name, Hadassah, means myrtle. Now, I know this is very anecdotal. I'm not saying this text was written for Myrtle Grove. <laughs> what I am saying is that it, God's plan is not thwarted by the nations or the intents of man. That's what I'm saying. Uh, so that, then we come to uh, Mordecai had this beautiful Hadassah named Esther, she was beautiful and she was lovely, and we then come to chapter 3. In chapter 3, there's a, a conspiracy that's hatched. Now, uh, one of the number one princes under um, uh, the king, Ahasuerus, was a pompous, prideful, evil person. I don't know if that was his intent. We certainly see his pomp and pride uh, because... He sent out as the number one prince in the kingdom that any time I come riding by, you have one posture, and that is to bow and get on your knees before me. Well, outside the gate, remember, is this uh, man called Mordecai who is a Jew, and he has this beautiful 
um, woman who is now grown and a young woman uh, who is beautiful and the king is having all the young beautiful virgins come and be brought into his harem as his concubines. Well, as it would have it, as God would have it, I suppose, Mordecai wouldn't bow to Haman. So Haman would ride by and those would begin to uh, sing out before him, here comes Haman the prince, bow before him, or something like that. And Mordecai would not bow his knee to any man because he was a God-lover and a God-fearer. Well, that put him at odds, obviously. So as you read chapter 3, what you find is that Mordecai refused to bow because he was a God-lover. Haman was filled with wrath. And he decided, not only am I going to kill this guy, I'm going to kill all of his ancestors. I'm going to kill everybody who is also a Jew. He found out he was a Jew. So, more, so Haman, the evil, pompous, prideful prince of Persia, that kind of rhymes, um, began a campaign and he conjured with the king, he got to the king and he said, what would you do if there were a people scattered around your kingdom who wouldn't bow the knee to your kingship? Well, I would, I would get rid of all of them. And so let it be written, they, writ, they wrote a writ, um, they gave a contract, King Ahasuerus said, let it be written, do as it pleases you, Haman. So now the Jews dispersed throughout Babylonia that has now become Persia were on the hit list for the Persians and the enemy was about to take all of the Jews out. Now so far, this beautiful woman, Hadassah or Hadassah or Esther, was now in preparation to be a, a concubine in the harem of the king and Mordecai wouldn't let her tell them, the king, that she was a Jewess. So the plot begins to uh, thicken just a little bit. And uh, as soon as the edict went out from King Ahasuerus to kill all of the Jews throughout all of the providences of Persia, chapter 4 then goes into Mordecai, the Jew who wouldn't bow his knee to Haman, uh, began, begins to repent publicly. Now they know, knew how to repent back then. Uh, chapter 4, I think it is um, uh, verse 1, Mordecai learned all that had happened, that is, that there was now a written contract on the head of every Jew, man, woman, and child. And Mordecai learned, all, uh, learned it and all that he had. Uh, he tore his clothes. Anybody want to stand up and demonstrate this? He, he tore his clothes... He put on sackcloth, and that's sort of like burlap. We don't use burlap much anymore. We use those little polyurethane kind of bags for corn and grain. But burlap, you know, it, it's this scratchy. So he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out loud a bitter cry. Can you picture that? His repentance, he tears his clothes, he puts on these bags, he begins to put ashes on his head and all over himself. He's, he just, he's just, whoa! And he goes out to the same gate where he served the Persian Empire 
as a Jew, and he began to repent in sackcloth and ashes with a bitter outcry. I don't know what that was like, but it was like his whole people were destined to be destroyed by Haman and now King Ahasuerus by trickery. Mordecai's request then in verse 8, his beautiful uh, cousin Esther was now living inside the palace and Mordecai outside repenting in sackcloth and ashes, word gets to Esther, his cousin, that Mordecai is outside the gate making a big stink in the public arena. So she sends word to him, and he then sends word back to her. And if you look at verse 8 in chapter 4, um, uh, he sent a copy. He, um, Mordecai, sends a copy of the contract to her saying all of your people are about to be destroyed. So now Esther is in a fix. She's in the good graces of the king. In fact, we learn that not only is she in the good graces, but she finds favor with King Ahasuerus and she becomes his queen. But she's a Jewess. And King Ahasuerus loves her more than all of the other concubines. But there's a law that no one can come before the king without being killed unless he takes his royal scepter and holds it out to them and allows them into his presence. So as you begin to track the story uh, forward, Mordecai request of Esther um, to put her life on the line. He sends word to Esther to go into the king and plead for herself and her people. Esther's reply then. Esther was called to put her life on the line in the midst of the Persian nation. Now the reason I'm sharing this story is that the work and the purpose and the mission of God is always accomplished by those who are willing to be part of God's agenda in any nation, in any time. So Hadassah, Esther, gets the contract. She gets the request from her cousin Mordecai that you need to go in to the king and you're going to risk your life and limb in order to do so. So verse 10 of chapter 4, then Esther speaks to um, one of the go-betweens and gave him this command to Mordecai. Verse 11, chapter 4. She says back to Mordecai, to his request, you need to go in before the king. She said, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court of the king who has not been called to do so, he has but one uh, law to whom the king holds out. He has but one law, and that is to put to death except the one to whom the king holds out his golden scepter that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king. Um, forget these next 30 days. So they told Mordecai Esther's words. 
Now, what she was saying is simply reciting to him the law. If I go into the inner court of King Ahasuerus without being beckoned for him, without being called to go into his presence, I will be executed unless he chooses to hold out the golden scepter and say, come in. To that then, to that response, Mordecai uh, sends reply back to Esther. I'm now at chapter or verse 13 of chapter 4, and it says this. And then Mar- Mordecai uh, told them to answer Esther. So Mordecai sends his response back to Esther. Do not think in your heart that you will escape because you live in the king's palace any more than all of the other Jews who live anywhere else. Verse 14. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and delivery will arise for the Jews from another place because God has a plan. But you and your father's house will perish. Therefore, yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Well, Mordecai's request was go before the king. Esther's understanding was if I go before the king without being summoned, and if he doesn't hold out his scepter, I'm toast. I will die. And in fact, uh, she determines that she will go in and uh, do just this thing. Her response then uh, is his response to her. Who knows whether you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now the fact of the matter is, if you're in the kingdom of God, if God has made covenant with you through the person of Jesus, the same that was true for Esther is true for you, whatever generation you're in. How do you know but that you are not in the kingdom for such a time as this? Now see, the reason I'm sharing that is that that begins to elevate our understanding of who we are and why we're here upon the earth in, on this day as a Christ believer or follower. And, and, and as things begin to go sour or become darkened or nations begin to quake and rulers begin, you know, all the crazy, anybody not know about craziness all around us? When that begins to happen, the question is, how do you know but that you're not in the kingdom of God for this very time? God doesn't make mistakes. You could have been born in the 1750s or the 1890s or the 1982. You know what I'm saying? God knows your generation and He knows that the importance of every generation. So, then, Queen Esther, her response in the end of verse 16, And so I will go to the king which is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. That is a young woman who understood the times in which she was living. She understands that laws are enacted and craziness happens and there is one thing that she is bent on and that is pleasing the one who has called her into the kingdom for such a time as this. God doesn't care what generation you're from. 
You have been called for a time such as this. And she says her response was, hey, I'm going to obey God, and if I perish, guess what? I just get home sooner. We are not part of this world. We are part, our citizenship is in heaven. And see, by golly, we can't be constrained by the laws that people make, whether they're not to pray in the public arena, uh, or whether it's to kill your babies because it's legal, or whether it's to men allowed to marry men, or women allowed to marry women. See, we have a higher authority. We love all people in the world, but we have a higher authority. And how do we know that if we're called to disobey a law that's against the law of God, how do we know that we're not called for such a time as this to simply stand, and if we perish, we perish? Brothers and sisters, that's the dividing line. If you perish... We get home sooner. Bless Jesus. Now the reason I want to end with that and look at some things about our generation, how do you know whether you're not called in the kingdom for such a time as this? And Hadassah's Myrtle's response is if I perish, I perish. God has situated this church as a a hinge moment upon the face of the earth. God has situated every church that names the name of Jesus as a, at a hinge moment in history. And how do we know that we have not been called for such a time as this? We could have been born in the 1500s, the 1800s, as I said, but we're alive right now as followers of Jesus, and we may have to go in before the king and risk life and limb and our neck. Now, let me end by saying the story goes forward. We'll continue it next week. She goes in before the king. She has all of her people were getting to Mordecai, caused them to fast and pray, uh, until I go in for three days, they fasted, they prayed, and Mordecai's out on the gate squalling and you know, chicken dirt and you know, ashes and sackcloth, and he's repenting. And she goes in before the king, King Ahasuerus. Now, she wasn't supposed to go. She goes in, and King Ahasuerus says, who's out in my outside chambers to one of his guys, his cronies, and says, oh, it's, it's Queen Esther. She opens the door, they open the door for her, and she walks in. But Esther found favor in the sight of the king. Now, we don't serve King Ahasuerus. We serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we have been given access to him Every time we think we're unworthy, we're not able, we're not... How can we go before the king and we dare come? He always extends his royal scepter and you have immediate access to the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Beloved, that makes you a very unusual people. 
That makes you a people above all other peoples on the face of the earth. That doesn't mean we're better. It means God chose us and brought us into the kingdom and has given us access every time we come before the throne. He says, come on in. Hadassah, hey, come on in. Jesus says, come on in. You are lovely and you are beautiful and you are so much different in God's eyes than you are in your own. You think you deserve death. The king says, here's my scepter. Come on in. Beloved, that is your calling. That makes you a royal priesthood. That makes you a holy nation. That makes you God's own people, and that sets you apart from all of the other people on the face of the earth. Now, we must remember the words of Isaiah chapter 60, Arise and shine, because your light's come. And because your light has come, then your purpose upon the earth is to rise and shine. What does that mean? I don't know exactly what it means, but it, I think it simply means when you're put in the pressure cooker, it might mean you vote a certain way. It might mean you, you take authority over a certain realm of your family. It might mean you're active and you're vocal in the marketplace. It might mean a thousand different things, but one thing I know for certain, that when push comes to shove, you're going to stand and say, if I perish, I perish, because I'm going to believe the king rather than the edicts of men. That sets you apart from other people. Now here's what the Lord said to me this morning at 7 o'clock as I was praying. I began to weep. He said, I've created a banquet for my people. He said, I want you to have them come by generations. What do I mean by that? It'll take just a couple of minutes, but... There's the builder generation. The builders are those people who were born before 1946. How many builders do we have in here? Come on, raise your hand. Now, everybody look around. Look, look around while the hands are up. Up in the balcony. Every generation is destined by God for a specific purpose. Every age group has been given something by the King of Kings and a mandate. The builder generation, they're called builders because they're, they're, they're actually called the greatest, the greatest generation, the great generation. Come on, somebody say, yeah, that's us. Come on. See, they're called the great uh, generation. They were those uh, people um, who were building a nation um, after the world wars. It was a the greatest generation who was personally impacted by a whole lot of hardship. Some of them lived through uh, the early, the aftermath of the Great Depression. They, they lived through um, World War II. The, but characteristics of that generation, hands up again, real fast. Builders, born before 1946. Um, part of what, uh, and this came through Tom Rayner that spoke at our General Assembly. Uh, what he said was that um, the characteristic of builders is that they resist change. <laughs> well, duh! 
they look at how much they've seen change in their life from Great Depression through the World War I, and they came back from war. And they, but but as a as a characteristic of a group, they are those people who resist change. They're impacted by the war. They like things the same. Now th- this can also be for many others of us as well. Um, they like routine. I'm sorry, elders. That's why I was so heartbroken when the God, God said, we're going to change things up. We're supposed to serve communion in the pews. And God said, no, you're not going to do it that way. Well, the, some of these gods, like, they resist change. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, the builders of them. Okay, anyway. Um, uh, of, they like habit. They like routine. They like comfort. They like things the way they've always been. The builders... Um, the, the generation of builders, I'm told, is about 65% Christian. Builders! The, the, the older generation is about 65% Christian across the board. And of those Christians, um, they've, they've come home from war and they were ready to settle down and they are the ones on the backs of whom this nation was built. And some of you are among us. And we're profoundly grateful for who you are. <laughs> Dean, where are you, Dean? Would you come up here and we're going we're gonna to celebrate communion and I'm going to have the builders come first. That's what the Lord said. So elders, why don't you come up here? God didn't give me specifics on how to do this, and that's okay. This is called um, follow Holy Spirit. He said lay it out as a banquet table. So gentlemen, go ahead and pull off the the caps of the wine and uh, uncover the bread. And in doing so, I simply want to remind us that on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, and he said, this is my body given for you. (laughs) As old as you are, builders, this was given for you. And after he had eaten with his disciples, he took the cup and he poured it out. He said, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for you. As often as you drink this, do so in remembrance of me. Now, there's more to come, but I want our builders among us to simply come at this time. If you are not able to come, then we will serve communion to you where you are, but you need to signify by raising your hand and sort of giving us a sweep so that we can be aware of that. Go ahead, Dean. Um, Just give us a little bit of music while we're honoring... And we are celebrating those who are builders among us. Those who were born before 1945. 65% of whom are Christians. Look at how many builders we have among us. Serve yourselves. Father, we bless those who are of the builder generation 
We honor them, God, because you honor them.
merriment that's happening in the room as we simply acknowledge, as we respect, as we value the generation of builders in our midst. We need you desperately. God has called you for such a time as this to be alive upon the earth. Yet, yes, some of your family members, even your loved ones, those of your own peer generation have already departed and gone to be with Jesus. So whereas you were 65% statistically around the nation, many of your numbers have already diminished because of you being born before 1946. Gentlemen, why don't you just have a seat right here on the, the um, whatever that is, steps behind you. And let me ask for the boomers uh, to come up. Now, before I do that, the next generation, the first generation is the builders, and they have been called for such a time as this. The boomers have been born, were born between 1946 and 1964. Raise your hand, boomers. Come on, look around, look around. Now, if the builders are more conservative because of the change that they've seen and they, they like things the way they were, the way they've always been, uh, the baby boomers, those born between 1946 and 1964, they're, they're a pretty optimistic bunch. Come on. <laughs> now, we are, we, I am a boomer, and uh, we are pretty, uh, we can do it, we can do anything. So we think. Come on, builders. Yeah, that's my son. He thought he could do anything. Um, we can do anything. Uh, we were given the privilege of great economic growth in this nation. Uh, we had much handed to us. We were the greatest population growth on the earth until that time. The builders came home from World War II and they were ready to build. And build they did. Let me see those boomer hands again. Come on. And build they did. You see, they thought, boomers thought they had a better idea than their previous generation. We thought we knew more than they did. We didn't. And they have been called, the boomers were called, the me generation. If the builders were called the great generation, the boomers were called the me generation. Drugs, sex, and rock and roll. Anybody remember those days? Yeah, we remember. Not everybody participated at the same levels than some of us did. Uh, but we were the, the, the me generation, and 35% and, and of us became Christian. Of the builders, 65% became Christians. But by the time the boomers were maturing, uh, they, they, we were 35% Christian, by one of the most massive spiritual sweepings that have swept across the nation called the Jesus Movement. How many of you were affected, boomers, by the Jesus Movement? Come on, a few of us. Some of you came later because you were uh, late adopters. You needed to figure things out. 35% uh, were actually um, boomers. Well, boomers, you have been placed here for such a time as this. Not only the builders, 
but they have handed the baton to you and has said, here, now it's your race to run. Run unto Jesus. But notice we've shrunken from 65% builders who were Christian to now, what was it, 35% Christians in the boomers. Boomers, stand up if you would. If you were born between 1946 and 1964, you're considered a boomer. Turn around and look. Okay, boomers, would you come? We want to serve you from the table of Jesus. Father, we have been a self-centered generation as boomers. We thought we could do it the best, and in fact, we came to recognize that only you could do it best. Father, would you forgive us for our rebellion against sometimes our builder parents or grandparents? God, would you cause us to recognize that we're alive upon the earth and have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. As the boomers, even though there are 35% of us, there's a large number of us here. Would you simply bless them as they come? Boomers, serve yourselves and then slip off to your left or to your right so others uh, can come. I told you, you were the me generation. <laughs> we think it's all about it. No, it's not. <laughs> Bless them as they come, would you? Uh, there are two more generations. Builders, bless them, encourage them. God is moving in the midst of not only the builders, but the boomers. We belong to you, Father, living for your glory and honor here on earth, just as in heaven we usher in the reign of your kingdom. It's rising, it's rising. Song of hope from the set free. It's rising, it's rising, it's rising up. Hallelujah to you, God the redeemed. Hallelujah, you open blinded eyes to see. We will raise you. You are. Hallelujah to you, God of the 
characteristics of the baby boom generation is that it's been called the pig and the python. And you can see why. Because there are so many of us, the, the most uh, population swell at that time, and every place the baby boomers go, it's like a pig in the python and it just moves uh, along and uh, God has specifically called um, not only the builders to give their life and be alive upon the earth but he's called us boomers and uh, we have been given a job to do as well and God is going to fulfill his calling upon us Now, as you come and serve yourself, just make yourself to the left and to the... There's so much love happening up here, it's amazing. And as they go back to their seats, share the love of Jesus with them and, and bless them. But as they come... Now, listen to me for just a minute. As they come, I want to introduce the next generation. The next generation has been called... Well, the Busters or Generation X. Uh, Generation X, uh, they're, um, they're born between 1965 and 1979. Are there any of you here that have been born? Why don't you just stand up where you are so that we can look around and see you? Now... You can be seated for just a moment. Now, if 65% of builders became Christian, 
and 35% of boomers became Christian. Uh, 22% of Gen Xers became Christian. Put your hands up again, Gen Xers. Now look, look around. See, their numbers have shrunken. 65, though their numbers are shrinking, uh, 35%, and now we're down to 22% of Gen Xers have become Christian. Gen Xers are a bit more pessimistic. They were born uh, between 65 and 79. They saw interest rates of 18% back in 1980. They tried to buy their first houses. They're following the boomers, wondering, if you're a Gen Xer here today, you're probably wondering if there's anything going to be left for you up here. The, sorry, the boomers ate everything. You'll have to go somewhere else. They're, they're a bit more pessimistic because they've followed this massive movement of boomers. They saw interest rates are high. They're hesi- they were hesitant to have children. They wondered as an age group, as a generation, uh, whether or not they even wanted to bring children into the world. The Gen Xers, well, they're more cautious. But Gen Xers, God has given you and your generation the gauntlet. And even though your numbers are but 22% Christian, you have been faithful to follow Jesus. Stand up, Gen Xers, wherever you are around our sanctuary. There are three or four more serving, so why don't you come forward, I'm teasing, and serve yourselves. Now, if you're here as a spouse and, you know, maybe you're a few years younger, a few years older, and you don't fit, you can come with your spouse. This is not hard and fast data. These are categories. But God has called the Gen X, the, the X generation, to do something extremely important upon the earth. Look at these guys. Only 22% of them have come to Christ, and yet of that 22%, they have carried a massive spiritual weight forward into this generation. Let's bless them. Let's just pray for them and encourage them as they come. Bless them today in the name of Jesus. 
Well, there's at least one more generation and one that is not yet fully defined. But I want to introduce to you the millennials. Stand up, millennials. Millennials were born between 1980 and 2000. Turn around and look at them. Y'all turn around. See who they are. Now let me tell you just a little bit about the millennials. You can sit down. I'll tell you what, you can come on. Begin to serve yourselves. Uh, the table's open to you. Millennials, step out into the, into the aisle and come forward. I want to just speak to them for just a minute. They are the greatest um, population burst that has even eclipsed the boomer generation. However, where the builders were 65% Christian and the boomers were 35% Christian and the Gen Xers were 22% Christian, the millennials are only 15% Christian. Now, at one level, they have... There are over 78 million millennials who ushered in the change of the millennium. We know some things about the millennials, that they are believers who are committed to a radical gospel. They, they, are, all not, they are not all that interested in the way builders have done it. They're not interested in church as usual. Now this isn't coming from Steve. These are stats I've gotten from Tom Rayner who's done this research. It's amazing. Um, they're committed to a radical gospel. They're interested in real change and transformation. They are not interested in church as usual. Come on, millennials. Somebody, is that true or not? They have watched builders and they have watched boomers, and they have watched Gen Xers, their parents, and they have seen the inconsistencies in us, and they are saying in their heart, we're going to follow Jesus, but we're not so sure we like your establishment. Does that sound familiar, boomers, Amen. to us? You see, they're committed and they're abandoned to follow Christ. They're interested in a simple discipleship process. How do I actually move from here to there? That, brothers and sisters, is what Hadassah, Myrtle, is about to figure out. That's what's going to make us a hinge movement of millennials and Gen Xers and boomers uh, and builders. To figure out a process of how one becomes a disciple and then how one grows as a disciple. They're committed to abandon all for Christ. They're, they're interested in seeing impact in their city. They would rather be, millennials would rather be involved in digging a well in Africa than coming to a boring as usual service. Now that's important to understand. They value builders. They value boomers. They value Xers. But what they don't value is the baloney that we've added to church. Y'all know what I mean by baloney? 
meaning just the relig- they understand what I'm saying, just the stuff that we've added to the religious establishment. They want to see impact in their own city. 85% of, only 15% have become Christians, but there are 85% of them out there who have not yet committed to following Christ, but the statistics say they are not antagonistic to the gospel. Now watch this. They are the largest population boom, and they have eclipsed the boomers. But they're only 15% Christian. Jesus changed the world with 12 people. 12 people who are radically committed to following Jesus. Millennials, stand back up a minute. We're not, we're not singling you out because you're different, though you are. <laughs> different than Gen Xers, different than boomers, and different than builders. We're singling you out because you're the Esthers. You're the people that have to go in and stand before the king. And you don't know if it's going to cost you your life. And you've said, I don't care if it costs me my life. We're going to follow this Jesus and we're going to do everything we can do to follow Him. We might not like all of the trappings around your church, dad, granddad, and great-granddad, but we are committed to following Jesus. Some of us builders need to loosen our hearts and love the boomers, love the Xers, and love the millennials. These, this is the Joshua generation. These are the people not outside the gate. These are the people coming in. We have to love them as they are with their tattoos. Come on, put your hand in the come on. And the Mohawks. And the pink hair. Any pink hairs here? And the, the, they're so different from us and us Xers and Boomers. We scratch our head and go, what? And God says, I have called them to be alive upon the earth for such a time as this. Grandchildren, children, the this generation. It doesn't excuse builders. It doesn't excuse boomers. It doesn't excuse Gen Xers. All of us have been given something by God. And God is asking you, can you run the last race, we, the last leg of the race? We don't know when Jesus is going to return. There are some who say it may happen at the Shemitah this year. Now, he might not come for another hundred years. We're to be ready on that day whenever it is. And I want the rest of you simply to stand and just let's just let's bless one another, can we? Let's just take a moment, whether you're a builder, a boomer, an Xer, or a millennial. Now those who are younger than those who are younger than Uh, the millennials you're in that group right now so if you've not come you need to come and serve yourself communion now we're going to worship with one more song and then we're going to be dismissed We've gone into over innings for just a minute.
but my wife has a word. And when my wife has a word, I listen. Remember that ODF, Hutton? <laughs> Church, my heart is, is full, but my heart is also broken. And whatever generation you're in, my prayer would be that this would be a church that would bend to the other generations. And what that may mean is that this church may not feel quite as comfortable to your particular generation, you may want different music, different style, different quiet, different loud. But what would happen in this city if we were a church where generation upon generation is not cloistered and alienated, but woven together and knit together in love? So I ask you in your heart, God, what am I doing that I can bend and embrace and allow that baton of faith to go from one generation to the next? Lord, search our hearts. And Lord, don't let us look to that person and say, he needs to change or she needs to change. But Holy Spirit, rend our hearts, soften our hearts, Lord, open us that we would be lovers, not simply of people in this church, but lovers, Lord, of the seekers that are outside and don't even know, perhaps, that there's a God who loves them and a Savior that died for them. Lord, help us to be people of love and of purpose and intention. In Jesus' name.
after the year 2000, uh, statisticians have not yet figured out uh, that generation and its characteristics. You are still considered in the millennial generation. But if you had not come because you were born after the year 2000, these tables are open and I want you to come because God has a very unique calling upon your life. And you can be sure if it were true for the builders and the boomers and the Xers uh, and the millennials, God is going to use you mightily in the days to come. Are there any born after the year 2000 in our midst? Come on up here. If you've not already, if you came during the, the, the millennials, that was my intent. But if you haven't, I want you to come. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you, God, that in every generation you have called a people to serve you with abandonment. Not knowing if it will cost us life or limb, but God, you have called us to serve you and walk with you, perhaps differently in different seasons but always in radical obedience for your great name's sake. God, would you bless your people today in every generation? Would you encourage their hearts? And would you release within each of those generation, generations a specific uh, prophetic anointing so that they might speak your word and encourage those around them, both those older, their peers, and those who are younger. In the name of Jesus, everybody said together, Amen. God bless you. Feel free to slip out. We went into extra innings. Oh well. God bless you. Have a wonderful day today.